Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out our website. We're a church that's simply about locking arms with our community to help bring restoration to individuals and neighborhoods all over the city of Austin. We're also a church that's founded on God's grace, and that means that no matter who you are or what you've done, this is a place where you can feel accepted and a place where you can belong. If you come to Fulmore Middle School for one of our Sunday gatherings, you can expect to find a welcoming and open environment. You can also expect to find a place for your kids to learn about Jesus and have fun in a safe place. We would love for you to come on a Sunday morning to Fulmore or learn more about us on our website. If you'd like to get more information or have any questions, you can also email us at info at restoreaustin.org. Either way, we'd love to see you soon. I am calling this morning's message, Give or Die. Let's jump into the text. All right. <laughs> Acts 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. The apostles were the leaders of this first church. If you haven't been here over the last few weeks um, or you don't know, we're in this series called Grace Awakening, and it's a look at the book of Acts in the very first church as God used this first church to awaken the world to his grace. So this guy Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they were a part of this first church, and they sold some property, they kept some money back for themselves, and they took the rest and they put it at the apostles' feet. We continue in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Give or die. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to pass the offering baskets. Um, just kidding. Look, this is a tough story. Um, this is a story that actually when I have told most people over the last few weeks that this story was coming up, um, most of them have said, why are you preaching that? Why would you not just skip over it and go to the next part? 
You know, in fact, I was, I was with a group of about eight pastors over lunch this week, and I was asking them what they thought about this story. Only two of the eight had ever taught this story at their church. Three others had avoided this story so much that they didn't even remember the details of what had happened in the story. All but one told me to skip it. All but one. Zach, you, you need to skip this story. And every single one of them, all eight, every single one of them had a different opinion of what is actually happening in this story. Eight pastors, we all are from Austin, we all have churches that are, you know, they're all different, but we have the same God and read the same Bible, and all eight had different ideas of what actually occurred in this story. So what do we do when we come across stories like these in the Bible? I think there are two unhealthy options. Unhealthy option number one is skip it. Just pretend like it isn't there. It makes us uncomfortable. It's kind of weird. We don't really understand what happened. Peter seems like not a super nice guy during this whole story, and, and it makes us uncomfortable. It, it's, it's strange. But it's in the Bible for a reason. We may not like it. We may not understand it, but it is there for a reason. So I don't think skipping it is a healthy way to go about this. Number two, the other unhealthy option, elevate it. Give it a sense or level of importance that it was never meant to have. Ascribe it huge meanings for all of scripture and all of Jesus to this one story and base our entire theology about what we think is happening in the story. Elevate it to a place maybe co-equal with uh, things like the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Elevate it to a place that it never meant to be long. I think those are the two unhealthy options when it comes to stories like these. Skip them or elevate them. We're gonna try to do neither of those this morning. And some of you may remember, um, we talked through the book of Jonah this summer. And before we looked at chapter one, the very first week we were teaching through Jonah, we talked about the infamous fish that swallows Jonah whole. So if you don't know that story, Jonah is a guy who's a, a prophet. He's one that spoke for God. And so he was this great prophet, and he prophesied all over to the to Jewish people. But then one day, God says, I actually want you to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a really scary place for Jonah because Nineveh and the Ninevites that lived there had been persecuting and killing Jewish people for years and years and years. And Jonah runs the opposite direction, right? He boards this ship for a place called Tarshish. If you look at a map, Tarshish is directly this way. Nineveh is directly this way. He runs as far away from God as he can. And then if you remember what happens, there's a storm. He's asleep at the bottom of the boat. The storm starts rocking everything. The guys go down. They're waking Jonah up. They're like, what's going on? You said that you were running from God. Maybe this is why we're having this bad storm. We've never seen anything like this. Get up. So Jonah gets up, he goes out, he sees the storm, he tells the guys, God's upset, just throw me overboard, everything will be fine. So they do, they pick him up, they throw him overboard, and then a fish swallows Jonah. Now when we talked about this this summer, we talked about how people interpret this story a few different ways, and the, the idea of this fish swallowing Jonah, here, here they are, number one, Jonah lived in the fish. And this is what is referred to as like maybe a, the natural theory. So we talk about this being like a sperm whale or a great white shark, and it has an air pocket inside of its stomach. And so he, he gets swallowed by the fish. There's this little air pocket. He survives by 
somehow he, he boils the water or something and there's no salt in it. He can drink it and everything's okay. So, but whatever way, God sustains him. He causes an air pocket. He causes there to be fresh water. Something happens and Jonah lives inside the fish for three days and three nights and then gets spat up on the shores of Nineveh. That's kind of option one. Option two, Jonah died inside the fish. And then three days later, he was resurrected by God onto the beach of Nineveh to go out and to do his work. People that believe this say you can't survive inside of a fish. There's no air, there's no clean water, there's no food. You can't live inside of a fish. Human beings can't live inside of a fish. So they would say, maybe he died, and then he was resurrected by God. And if you think about it, actually, Jonah, later Jesus calls Jonah a picture of himself. He says, I am the greater Jonah. And if you remember, Jesus died. Three days later, he rose. Right? So some people believe there's some... some uh, things are like another thing. Symbol. Thank you. Kate, on the ball today. Appreciate that. Symbolism. Symbolism of Jesus and Jonah. So some people believe that. Now there's a third option as well. People believe that that part of the story is just an allegory. It didn't actually happen. It was just the way that they told the story of how God redirected Jonah back to the city of Nineveh. They would say that that doesn't happen. It's not real. So God, they just to tell the story. And this was how happened a lot in kind of the Old Testament or that time period where people said, well, they told stories to have greater meanings, right? It's an allegory or something like that. So when we presented Jonah, I presented those three options. And I talked about how I personally believe that it's option two, that he died and then he was resurrected on the beach. And I explained that more. If you want to go back and listen to that sermon, you certainly can. I explained more of why I believe that. But then I said, if you believe option one, two, or three, I'm okay with that. Whatever option you believe about that, it does not affect what I believe about Jesus, what I believe about Scripture. It does not scare me. Whatever option you believe about that. In fact, I know many Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christian men and women, theologians, pastors who believe all three of those things. It doesn't offend me. It doesn't cause me to doubt my faith. I believe that this story falls into a similar category. As you read commentaries from pastors and theologians about this story, you find all of these five perspectives about Ananias and Sapphira. Number one, God killed Ananias and Sapphira because they didn't give the money they promised. Number two, Peter killed Ananias and Sapphira because they tried to trick him and the church and he got upset. Number three, God gave them both over to the sinful desires of their heart when they tried to, to run away from him and it led to their ultimate destruction. Number four, they both had heart attacks because they had so much anxiety about lying to the church and to God. That's actually a, a fairly prominent view, that they were so frightened and so filled with anxiety when they were confronted by Peter that they both just immediately had heart attacks and died of natural causes. Number five, this story it shouldn't be included in the Bible, shouldn't be included in Scripture. It was not an accurate portrayal of what was actually happening at the time. Those are all over the place, and they are all very different. I'm going to tell you more about which option I tentatively believe in just a minute, but again, I am not offended by where you fall on this story. And as we dive into it, I'd love for you to just kind of figure out what you think about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. But I'm going to tell you why I am not offended by what you believe, by using my trusty whiteboard. Oh gosh. This is a circle. In the very middle of the circle, it says the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you can read that. 
This circle represents kind of the Christian faith, what Christians believe about things. At the very middle is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the central aspect of what Christians believe. Christians believe that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, the death that you and I deserved. He was a perfect, blameless sacrifice. He was buried, he was in the ground three days, and he rose from the dead, overcoming death with life, and now he offers that life to everyone. That is the the bedrock of the Christian faith, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the very middle. Now, you have things on the outside, right? You have the fish and Jonah. You have things like seven-day creation, literal seven-day creation. Some people believe it was literal days like we have. Some people believe it was over a lot of time. Some people believe that God started the Big Bang Theory. Some people believe that that's heresy. There's all over the place. That's also in here. Some other things that fall into this category, dinosaurs. Did they really exist? Did God bury their bones to confuse us? Different perspectives on that. Age of the earth. Is the earth 6,000 years old? Is the earth millions of years old? It's kind of all over the place. We look in scripture, we try to do our best. The end times. What happens at the very end when Jesus comes back? Is the book of Revelation an exact picture? When we look at the description of Jesus, is that exactly what it's going to be like? Or is it just the best interpretation of what John could do as Jesus and God showed him what the end times would look like? There are Bible-believing Christians that are all over the place on what's going to happen in the end. And then you have the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Those are all kind of on the outskirts. Now, they're, they're in there. They're important. I'm not saying they're not important. But don't miss this, okay? Because this is what Satan tries to do. We talk about here at Restore is the idea of primary issues and secondary issues and how vitally important that is for Christians. Did you know there are over 33,000 different denominations of Christian churches? And I tell you that 99.9% of them did not divide over this. They divided over these things. They could not come together, and so they they parceled it out. So now they have like a a church that is specifically about the age of the earth or a church that has specific views of the end times, a whole denomination that has specific views of the literalness of a seven-day creation. And we fracture, and we split, and we fracture, and we split because we get away from the primacy of the person and work of Jesus Christ. When I was in a seminary class, we were actually talking about this Ananias and Sapphira story. My professor took this, and he, he drew this kind of thing on the board, and he drew this circle, and he said, this is the very middle of Christianity. Everything else flows out of this. We can have difference of opinion about this, but this is what Satan does. Satan redraws the circle, and he puts the person and work of Jesus Christ on the outside, and he puts something like the death of Ananias and Sapphira right in the very middle, and then he asks you a question like, hey, if you can't guys can't agree on what really happened in this story? What makes you think you can agree about this? And he makes this a primary issue. And then churches start dividing. People start walking away from the faith because there are churches and there are people that tell you this or this or this or this or this are just as important as this. And it is not. They are not as important as this. 
And Satan uses these things to divide, to steal, to kill, and to destroy, is what John 10.10 says. We take this idea of rest- at Restore of primary versus secondary issues very seriously. It doesn't mean that these things aren't important, the outside ones. It doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from them. It just means that they aren't forever. It means that they aren't prime. It means that they aren't worth dying over or dividing over for us. Now, in John 10.10, as I said, Jesus says, the thief Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Don't let Satan redraw your circle. Make this the very middle. Now you may be asking, if Ananias and Sapphira are way out here, why are we even talking about them? Why didn't you just skip it like all your pastor friends told you? Well, I didn't say that they were way out here. I didn't even say that the story was way out here. I said kind of the circumstances around their death are way out here. But the reason that we're looking at it is because each of these things point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the entirety of Scripture is actually about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible, as much as we like to make it about us, is not actually about us. The Bible was written for us, but the Bible is about God. It's his story. And as we try to find our place in his story, we read scripture and we learn about these things. The Bible isn't God. The Bible teaches us about God. The Bible isn't where the full life that Jesus promises is found. It's only found in him. In fact, Jesus teaches this very thing to the religious leaders in John chapter 5. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. So with that baseline of understanding that the Bible is not about us, it's about God. The Bible is not God, it's about God. And the Bible does not give us the full life that Jesus offers. It simply tells us about the full life that Jesus offers. With that understanding, we are ready to ask this question. What does the story of Ananias and Sapphira teach us about life in Jesus? We good? We on the same page? Okay. Now let's go back to the story itself. Now there's some important context for the culture of this first church that comes from our author, Luke, in the verses leading up to this story, Acts 4, 32. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Such a beautiful picture of the community that this first church shared. But it's important to note that this was not out of compulsion, right? They weren't saying as part of being the first church, you have to sell everything that you have, bring us everything that you have so that we can distribute it among the people. No, people were coming forward voluntarily and saying, look, I have this extra piece of land. Let me sell it so this person who has nothing can have something because they were family. 
They didn't just see each other as a group of acquaintances that they worshipped at the temple or in a home with. No, they saw each other as part of one family, and they lived like it. It's a beautiful picture of, of what I think more of our churches should look like today. And then in the very next verse, they tell the story about someone who exemplified this sacrificial love in the first church. It was a guy named Joseph, Acts 4.36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now remember, our author here, Luke, is a doctor and historian. He's very fact-driven. He's very detail-oriented. He's not one to, to start orating about large things like, like going into some Barnabas' life story or talking about how great he was because he was one of the first people to come and sell everything and give it to people who were in need. I'm sure pages and pages could have been written about Joseph, Barnabas, and others who sacrificially gave, but he just gets this one sentence. But there's a really important fact in this sentence that we often miss. The apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What Joseph does here is so beautiful, so moving, so significant for the apostles that they give him a nickname that means son of encouragement. And the nickname sticks. You may have heard of Barnabas if you're familiar with the New Testament. He goes on to be mentioned 23 different times by Luke in the book of Acts. He eventually becomes a fellow apostle, the highest level of leader in that first church. And then he and Paul are eventually the ones that are sent out to start new churches all over the region. He's, he's one of the leaders of the Christian movement. He's one of the most important Christians to ever live, Barnabas. And we see him in his first year. And at the beginning, I mentioned that I would let you know what I believe happened in this story. Now, again, this is very much just my opinion, but it's after a, a lot of time of reading and praying and talking to people and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal what is truly happening in this story and how does it apply to our lives. I think Ananias and Sapphira hadn't been a part of that first church for very long. I think they'd been just normal people living in Jerusalem chasing money and power like most everybody else does, trying to get ahead, trying to gain influence, trying to accum accumulate possessions and property and finances. Then they saw this first church, and, and they heard all these miraculous stories about people being healed and thousands of people being added to the church every single day. This first church starts to gain massive amounts of influence in a very short period of time. And all of this, Ananias and Sapphira observe, is being done under the leadership of seemingly ordinated, excuse me, ordinary and uneducated men and women, many that had been in prison for long periods of time. So Ananias and Sapphira see this. Thousands of people are becoming a part of this movement, and it has financial backing, too. People are selling things and giving to this movement. Thousands of people joining, and it's all being led by ordinary and uneducated men and women. And they'd also, Ananias and Sapphira, spent their entire lives watching religious leaders be the most powerful and rich people in the entire nation. So they decided, unfortunately like many people still do today, that this first church might be a place that they could quickly gain power and influence that they'd been working for over their lives. 
So they join up under completely false pretenses. They say, I'll come be a part of this first church, and maybe I can rise to power, maybe I can gain influence, maybe I can get rich like these other religious leaders are rich. And they start trying to figure out how they can move up into leadership. Then, not long after that, they see this guy named Joseph, ordinary guy inside of the first church, but he does this amazing thing. He sells this piece of land that he has, he brings the money, and he sets it at the apostles' feet. And what do the apostles do? They give him the nickname, son of encouragement. They begin to elevate him into leadership. They eventually make him an apostle and a church planter and one of the most important and influential leaders in all of Christian history. And Ananias and Sapphira see that, and they think that is our way in. That's how we do it. We have this extra piece of land. We've been accumulating possessions our entire lives. Let's sell this extra piece of land. Let's bring it to the apostles' feet. And then maybe, like Joseph, who got renamed Barnabas, we could start gaining some influence in this church. We could start moving up. We could start being in power. We could start getting rich. They had their opening. But they're still so enslaved to their money that they actually don't give all of the proceeds of the land to the church. They think, who's going to know if we keep some back for ourselves? No, nobody knows how much we sold it for in the first place. That way we start to move up into this powerful and prestigious position, but we still get to keep a lot of our money. What they didn't realize is that you can't trick God. He knows and sees all things, including the intentions of our hearts. God catches them in the lie about the money, and even more significantly, he knows why they're hanging around this first church to begin with. And through the Holy Spirit, God reveals these things to Peter, the leader of this first church. And Peter calls Ananias in. Now listen again to what he says, verse 3. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Who made you think of doing such a thing? You have not only lied to human beings, but to God. Peter says the land was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. You could have kept it. You could have sold it. You could have sold it and kept all the money for yourself. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. The issue, Ananias, is not how much or how little you gave to the church. The issue is your heart. The issue is why you lied in the first place. The issue is why you're here in the first place. You didn't just lie to us. You lied to God. And then verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Now, all we can do here is take the text for what it says. It doesn't say that God killed Ananias. It doesn't say that Peter killed him. It doesn't say that he had a heart attack. It just says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. I believe that Ananias and Sapphira spent their whole lives, including their time in the first church, chasing sinful desires, manipulating people, hurting people, trying to gain influence and power over people so that they could use it to further their own agenda, to get rich, to get powerful. And I think that God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart 
and it led to their destruction. I think that God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. He said, Ananias and Sapphira, if this is all you're going to chase, and here, have it. And it led to their destruction. You see, the Bible is amazingly clear on a few things. One of them is God's hope and plan for humanity. I want to conclude this morning by looking at one of the most popular verses in the entire Bible. One that you've heard many times, whether you have been in church your entire life or this is your very first time. John 3, 16. This is Jesus talking to a guy named Nicodemus about God's mission and why Jesus was there. So let's just put it up on the screen and we're going to look at it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the one we know, right? This is kind of the important one. This is the one that gets chanted all the time. This is the most popular verse in all of scripture. This is the one that's Jeopardy answers and things like that. It's made its way into pop culture. You see people at, at, at baseball games and football games with signs that say John three sixteen. But the next verses are just as important and they don't get nearly the same airtime. 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That is clear. He sent his son into the world to save the world. God's on a mission of restoration. We say that all the time, pursuing each and every person with his relentless love. But not everyone embraces that love. Some people spend their entire lives running away from that love. And others spend their entire lives actively working against God's love. And God is clear about people like that. They stand condemned. They have chosen darkness over light. It's so interesting to me that the first thing Peter says to Ananias is, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Satan filled Ananias and Sapphira's heart because they turned their back on the love of God. Because even when they saw the light of Jesus firsthand in that first church, they chose darkness instead. Jesus' mission is clear, but so is Satan's. John 10, 10 again. Now listen to it with fresh ears this time. The thief, that is Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Hear me, my friends. The only alternative to God's love is destruction. When we run away from the love of God, we run directly into the destructive arms of the enemy. 
Those are the options. Satan came to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus came so that we may have life. Jesus came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. But that scripture is clear. The verdict is in. Some have chosen to pursue the darkness, even when the light is right in front of them. Some of people have chosen to run away from the love of God and his open arms into the arms of the enemy that only leads to destruction. That's a hard truth. And I'm not sugarcoating it for you this morning. I'm telling you this not because I want to scare you, not because I'm mad at you, not because I'm up here and I like to yell about this stuff, but because I deeply care about each and every one of you. The enemy wants to steal and kill and destroy, but God wants to give you life abundantly. I don't know why you're sitting here this morning or or watching online or watching this later on a video. I, I don't know why you're doing that. I doubt that many of you are here for the same reasons as Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not going to put that on you. Our church doesn't have thousands of people to gain power over or tons of money to get your hands on. So if you are trying to be like Ananias and Sapphira, you are out of luck. (laughs) But if you're here and you are still running from God's love, I want you to know that it's not too late. It's not too late to turn the loving arms of God. But if you continue running away from the love of God, your life will be plagued with destruction. If you continue running away from the love of God, your life will be plagued with destruction. God is loving and gracious. His mercies are new every morning. But if you do not give yourself over to his love, he will let you go. He's not a God that makes us do things. He didn't make a bunch of robots so that he could tell us exactly how to to be, to program us, to love him back. He gives us a choice. And if you continue to run away from the love of God, he will let you go. And that only leads to destruction. And I want more for you than that. How do I know this is true? I know it because I was Ananias and Sapphira for a really long time. Uh, I don't want to date myself, but um, last night was actually my 10-year high school reunion. And uh, I, I didn't actually go to the reunion. <laughs> I, um, I hung out with five of my friends that I graduated with, and we played poker and played basketball and hung out. And we hung out for like four or five hours. And, and I mean, all we did was tell stories, you know, about like what life was like 10 years ago and, and high school and junior high. And we've all, I've known two of them since I was four the rest of them since like fifth grade. And so we just reminisced, you know, we talked about story after story after story. And three of us actually have kids now and the other three are, are single or um, getting ready to get married. And 
I tell you, as we went through these stories of the things we used to do and the things we used to be like, I mean, I was like, I was horrified by so much of it, especially as someone with kids now, you know? And one thing we got onto was this topic of like, what are you, how much are you going to tell your kids? You know, like as they grow up and as they walk through things, how much are you going to tell about how we used to be? And, and is that good? Is that bad? Does it help them? Does it protect them? Does it just empower them to do more bad things or does it scare them into not doing bad things? You know, you're wrestling with that and trying to figure that out. But I remembered that for so long, man, I ran headlong away from the love of God. I hated church. I only went because my parents made me. But I used my time there to fulfill the selfish and sinful desires of my heart. I stole money from the offering plate. I used youth camps as convenient ways to hit on girls from other towns. I used lock-ins to terrorize my pastors. And honestly, that was the tamest part of my life at that moment. I ran so fast away from the love of God that I could feel my life starting to self-destruct. And when I was 17, year old, 17 years old, over a 24-hour span, I overdosed and lived, and then the next night watched a guy overdose and die. And in that 24 hours, I saw and touched how choosing a life of running away from the love of God ends. I experienced some of the destruction. I saw firsthand what it's like. Now it was the moment that I stopped running from God's love and started living in it. And I'll be honest, life hasn't been perfect since then. It hasn't been easy. I've never, I haven't not ever had hard times or been through tough things, but I tell you, I've never walked through them alone. And I've always known that the relentless love of my Father in heaven is right next to me, no matter what I'm walking through. And I know that Romans 8.28 is true, that he is working all things together for my good. It doesn't mean that everything I walk through is good, but I know and I trust that he is working it for good somehow. And I tell you, it's pretty fresh, especially after a night like last night of reminiscing about what those two paths really look and feel like. Over here, as I ran so fast from the love of God, destruction was my only end. But over here, I have the hope of God's love, not just now, but forever. I have the the peace of knowing that God both fully knows me, knows every single thing about me, and yet still fully loves me. I have the hope of my Christian brothers and sisters that God has put in my life to care for me and to hold me when times get hard. If you're here this morning, no matter how long you have been running from the love of God, he isn't finished pursuing you. If you're listening this morning, he is not done coming after you with his relentless love. So my question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? 
band's about to come up and we're going to close with a song. And this song in the first verse is talking about who God is and it says, you give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. I tell you, my friends, I have found that to be exceedingly true in my life. That when I stopped running from the love of God and I turned around and was embraced by his <laughs> loving arms, that everything changed for me. That the brokenness of my life started being restored, that he started putting the pieces back together. And that I never walked alone again. This is a hard story. And this is a hard truth. But if you are running from the love of God and you don't stop, he's going to give you over to the sinful desires of your heart. He's going to let you go. That way only ends in destruction. If that's you this morning, make this morning the last morning that's true of you. Make this morning the last morning that you ran from the love of God. And make today the day that you turned around and you were embraced by the never-ending, perfectly loving arms of our Father. Let's pray. God, thank you for your, your word this morning. Thank you for hard texts. Thank you for hard stories in scripture. Thank you that you teach us things in the midst of them. Thank you that we don't have to skip them or elevate them, but I thank you, God, that every single time they point back to you, to your son Jesus, to to his work on the cross, to him overcoming death and the grave, and to his work of giving us life. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for relentlessly pursuing us with your love, no matter who we are or what we've done. And I pray, God, I pray boldly right now that if there are people in this room that have spent the first part of their life running from you, that today would be the day that they move on to the second part of their life, which is turning to you. Not running from your love, God, but living in your love. God, move in our hearts this morning. Change our lives this morning. God, even if there was a moment in our life when we turned around and we embraced your love, but we have started shying away from it, that we've forgotten what it's like to live from your love, God, not live for your love. That's ours unconditionally, but what it's like to live from your love. Remind us, God. Help us find our faith in you. Help us find our hope in you and our identity in you. Jesus name we pray.